amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Without a doubt, it is probably the best known Christian hymn in all the world. And even in secular society, when the tune Amazing Grace is played, individuals know that it refers to this hymn by John Newton. But you and I live in a day where grace does not seem to be so amazing. In fact, for some reason, it's almost seemed to be commonplace or taken for granted. Now, part of that could be because of the fact that we are so familiar with it, and familiarity at times breeds what? Contempt. We just think it's common. We look down on it. It's not that important. But another reason might be that we have become increasingly impressed with ourselves. There are very, very few individuals who do not believe that there is innate goodness within man. Even in Bible-believing churches, sometimes even with relatives, we tend to think of them as good people rather than individuals that are depraved in every aspect of their being. And sometimes people will even say that in response to the fact that I can say, well, I know there is nothing good in me to commend me to God. Well, you must have a very low view of yourself would be the response. And my answer to that is, no, I don't have a very low view of myself because you're just like I am. But we don't believe that. And even in the updates of this great hymn, we see a reflection that even in Christianity, people have lost a sense of our utter helplessness before God. When John Newton wrote this work, he said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you look at editions of hymnals that were produced in the late 1900s, you will find that this hymn now says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a sinner such as me. Well, a sinner is not quite as an offensive a term as would be true of Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. And if you look at literature or hymnals that are written since the change in the century, now you will find this hymn is written, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. Hmm, Someone like me. Because after all, I'm basically good. 
And I just need God to help me with not feeling so lonely. Or I need God to help me in some way that I can better my situation in life. I don't recognize the fact that I am justly condemned for my sin before God and therefore in need of his grace and mercy. Why is grace not so amazing today? Well, it's commonplace in Christian circles and discussions. Why is grace not so amazing today? Because man has an erroneous view of his condition before God. We are basically thought of as good and somehow God just can't get along without us. Why is it that grace is not so amazing today? And it's because even though we might give lip service to the idea that salvation is of the Lord, we have embraced the methodology that came out of the 1900s that says there are ways in which we can manipulate individuals to make decisions for Christ. We have embraced methods We have embraced programs for evangelism and can generate responses of individuals. And then once we get those humanistic responses, we find now we have individuals that we classify as Christians, but they have no spiritual desires. So what do we need to do to remedy that? Well, we need to put programs together to try to create spiritual appetites in individuals who are tares being made as if they're wheat because we need the programs now on how to mature in Christ, on how to grow in Christ, on how to become more like Christ, how to control the anger, how to do this, how to do that. We become a works-oriented Christian culture. And therefore, grace is not so amazing because it has to do with the things that we can do for ourselves. I think the problem really is stemming from the fact, like Paul, when he wrote to the uh, Galatians, said, As you have therefore received Christ, so walk in him. And if an individual is a thinking person, he would say, well, how did I receive Christ? Well, I prayed a sinner's prayer. I walked an aisle. I succumbed to a form of water baptism or some other human effort and program. Therefore, what am I supposed to do now as I try to live the Christian life? I need a program. I need a method. I need some way to enable myself to mature in Christ. The Apostle Paul knew that inevitable would be coming. Even back in his own day and recorded for us in Acts chapter 20, we find the Apostle Paul giving his farewell address to the elders of Ephesus. And what he is doing in this farewell address is reminding them of the essence of his ministry and it wasn't just to promote or boast about himself. He was providing them with the essence of his ministry as a way in which it would provide them with an understanding of what was essential to be prepared against the inevitable attacks that would come to Christian doctrine. And those inevitable attacks would come through the instrument of the evil one 
who would start promoting some form of activity to make Christianity a religion, failing to really appreciate that Christianity is a relationship with the living God through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Paul gave this farewell address because he said he knew after his departure savage wolves would come in and not spare the flock. And even from among themselves, that is, from leadership within the local church, from Christian leaders in any period of church history, they would begin to speak perverse things. They would distort the truths of the word of God in order to to draw disciples after themselves. And in that reality, Paul says, I therefore commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Or if I go back to what he said in verse 24, you'll notice he said, when I've learned that what awaits me is persecution and affliction, I don't consider my life as dear unto myself. In order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of what? Of the grace of God. What I want you to notice is whether he talked about the gospel or he talked about the word of God, which is a a valuable asset to us, what modification did he give to both? The word of his grace. Because what you and I need to understand is that when we start talking about the Christian life, When we start talking about how is it inaugurated, it's inaugurated by the grace of God. How is it continued? It is continued through the grace of God. How is it that we mature? We mature by the grace of God. How is it that we're brought safely home, as Newton would tell us in his great hymn? We are safely brought home through the grace of God. There have been many trials and toils and afflictions that we have met met in life. But grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we begin to recognize our helpless estate before God, when we begin to understand there is nothing I can do to change my condition before God, when I begin to understand that I am now made perfect or righteous, I am now matured in Christ, not by works that I might perform, but by grace through faith, I begin to see grace is really very amazing. I have had the privilege of walking with God for over four decades now. And what I'm really beginning to understand is that I don't hardly understand grace. Grace is something we flippantly talk about Grace is something that permeates all of the scripture, but grace is the profound aspect of God's working and dealing with his children in every aspect of their life. No wonder you and I should be liberated by this amazing grace because there is nowhere ever in the scripture that God's people are told you are on a performance scale before me. We are never his wonderful saints with whom he is justly proud. 
but we are always his erring children with whom he is long-suffering and patient. We are always standing in grace before him. And as John brings it out in the introductory phrases to his gospel record, what we receive in Christ is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You're standing before God, always is, always will be, all of grace. How is it we begin this life? Why, it's through the gospel of the grace of God, which focuses on Jesus Christ. And in our last session together, we talked about the reality of this grace of God in the salvation of Jesus Christ. And you will notice that Paul, writing to the Romans just by way of going back because of trying to lay a foundation that from beginning to end, it is always the work of grace. Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed by. In other words, I'm not going to use something other than the gospel of the grace of God when I preach the message to the people that don't know truth. I'm not going to try to impress them with my intellectual abilities. I'm not going to try to coerce them with my debating tactics. I'm not going to rely upon philosophy or other aspects of human learning. I came to you as he wrote to the Corinthians, and I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know why? I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why not? For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, especially to the Jew and also to the Greek. What he is emphasizing is the fact that God's spirit takes the foolishness of the gospel and gives life to individuals that are dead in sin. What is the truth of God to the natural man? It's foolishness. How is it he begins to comprehend? I do not intellectually enable someone to comprehend the deep things of God. And it is not my responsibility to have them agree with me in what I understand about the word of God. My responsibility, like Paul's, is to solemnly testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Because in the wisdom of God, God's spirit uses the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring his elect unto himself and to give them eternal life. Look at how Paul describes it when he wrote to the Thessalonians. If you turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the apostle Paul said the following. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God, our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, what has he said he know of them? God's choice of them. And how did he know that those saints at Thessalonica were the objects of God's grace and that they had been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world? And it's because the Spirit of God took the gospel of the grace of God and did a transforming work within them. Notice how he says that. He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power 
and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and in the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And he says, we don't have to tell others things about you because your faith toward God has gone forth. Verse 9, and others report about uh, us as to what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son. Do you see what Paul's saying? I didn't come in and try to convince you you need to make a decision for Christ. I preach to you the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God. And the spirit of God used that gospel of the grace of God. And what did he do? He took individuals who were dead in sin and made them alive. He produced a change within their being. And that change within their being is they no longer served idols. They now were the servants of the true God. In other words, it's all of grace. Isn't that the truth that we so commonly refer to when we quote from Ephesians chapter 2? You were dead in your transgressions and sin. But even when you were dead, what happened? You decided to follow Christ. Even when you were dead, you walked an aisle and prayed the sinner's prayer. Even when you were dead, God made you alive. For by grace, you are saved through faith. And when I begin to understand how I received Jesus Christ, that it was the sovereign work of God and grace to me, received through the channel of faith, I'll begin to understand how I'm to walk in my daily life now as a child of God. As I received Christ, so now I walk and live with him. How is it I'm to conduct myself each day? I am to rely upon God and his grace to continue that work within me. Because from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord, and it is the marvelous work of grace. How did Newton say it? What taught my heart to fear? What caused me to recognize I am justly condemned in my sin? And what is it that caused me to have relief for those sins that I have against God? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Why is grace not amazing today? Because we think we make decisions to come to God. We don't recognize that the Ethiopian can't change the color of his skin. We don't recognize that a leopard can't get rid of its spots and become some other animal. And as God said, if those things could happen, then you who are accustomed to doing evil can make yourself do good. The reality is even the greatest of all human efforts is still filthy rags before God. There is none good, no, not one. And if you're going to have a ministry that is looking for the people who are seeking after God, guess what? There's none that seek after God. So how am I going to draw them? How am I going to see them come to Christ and have lives changed? 
I better start preaching the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the reality that the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. And it is through the foolishness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the spirit of God works and gives life to those who are dead in sin. It's a work of grace. It's a work of grace. Look with me over in Romans In Romans chapter 4, what I need to understand when we talk about this operation of God's grace, it is now a position that I have before him because of the principle by which he deals with me in grace. Notice how David stated it in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, we read, Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Now, if something is given apart from works, that means it's given as a gift. It's not something he earned, he deserved, he sought. It is an act of grace. And what's true of that act of grace? Oh, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 32. How blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. How blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Do you hear that? If you are a child of God, you stand before God in grace and there is nothing that can disrupt that relationship that you have with him. No matter what my offenses may be, God never holds them accountable against me. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not take into account his sin. Now to a non-believer and to individuals in the body of Christ, that may seem to be a very precarious place to be. That where my sin abounds, grace superabounds. That God will never hold my offenses against me. That there is nothing that will ever separate me from God and that he will hold me accountable for any aspect of my sin. The reality is Jesus paid how much? It all. He didn't just pay for 90% of my sins and now I need to take care of the rest. Jesus paid it all and it's all to him I owe. And so the person that is thinking about this might say, well, if God covers our sin, he won't hold it against us, then we might as well just not worry about how we live and begin sinning because grace will even superabound. And Paul said, oh no, because not only is God's grace irresistible, not only does God's grace take someone that is dead and make them alive, not only does God's grace change the individual's position before him, 
but you need to understand grace is much more than just the sphere in which you stand before God. Grace is a dynamic entity at work within the heart of every one of God's children. Notice how he said it over in Romans chapter 5. In verse 21, he says, As we think about what God has done through Jesus Christ to those who are identified with Christ, that as sin reigned in death, in other words, was that not the reality of your condition before God touched you in his grace? You were under the dominating control of sin. But what's happened? He's identified you with Jesus Christ. And if he's identified you with Jesus Christ, even so, here's God's intended purpose, that you're identified with Jesus Christ so that grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. In other words, grace becomes the dominating ruler in the life of the child of God, just as sin used to be the dominating ruler in the child of God. God has made a difference, and grace is an effectual master, and it accomplishes in the life of the individual what no work of man, no effort to try to say, let's do these following regulations so we can be pleasing to God. Because the difference is God wrote righteousness on the heart of his children and grace is the sufficient master to make sure that God's people walk the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, right? Psalm 23. Grace is the governing rule in the life of God's people. Notice how he asked that question in chapter 6. Since sin will not be a master over us in verse 14, because you're not under law, but under grace. Here's the dominating rule in your life. Shall we continue in sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Meganoita, may it never be. What Paul is saying is grace does within the child of God what no rules, regulations, stipulations could ever do. And why is it that grace works this way? Because if you're a child of God, you're not what you used to be. Now, if you're just playing at being a Christian, you are what you used to be, and you're just trying to be moral and ethical and somehow spiritual. But if you are the object of God's grace, if you stand before him and he'll never hold to account your sins against you, God continues the work of his salvation. And Paul says, I want you to try to understand this, so I'm going to break it down to you in very simple fashion. Notice what he says, verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That is, you're not fully able to comprehend what I'm saying. Just as you presented, past tense, your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So think about this with me. What program did you need to follow and study to learn how to be a sinner? None. You naturally gave yourself to doing that which is displeasing to God. It's where we all are as unregenerate individuals. 
We were dead in our sin, Ephesians chapter 2. And what does he say about it? We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. Or as Jesus said, we were of our father, the devil. And the desires and delights of our father is what we wanted to do. But if you're a child of God, you've been freed from sin, as he says later in chapter 6. You've been enslaved to God. And just as you naturally gave yourself to a lifestyle, even an ethical, moral lifestyle, but didn't give God the place he deserved, God's not impressed with religious people. God's not impressed with moral people. God is only impressed with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on behalf of undeserving sinners. And what grace does effectually within the child of God is he makes him someone new. And what is it for the child of God? Even though he still has things that he needs to struggle with as he grows in Christ's likeness, even though there are times the temptations come, his lifestyle is naturally different from what it was before. Because in the past, your lifestyle was naturally given over to that which is unacceptable to God. And now, you naturally give yourself to that which pleases him. And so he says, for when you were slaves of sin, You were free in regard to righteousness. There was nothing about you that commended you to God. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? God's people don't take any pleasure in their arrogant pride that was true of them before they became a child of God. God's children don't find any delight in the way in which they offended God in their way of living before. God's children humbly now want to please him and do what glorifies his name. And why is it like this? Because the wages of sin is death. But God's free gift, a gift of grace, guarantees that God's people will live a different kind of life. See, we're so used to looking at Romans 6, 23 as just part of a pitch to get people to make a decision for Christ and not realizing that what he is saying is salvation is of the Lord. It begins by the work of grace and because of this work of grace, it ensures that God's people will not continue a lifestyle in sin because grace is the effectual master that does a work within the child of God causing them to naturally desire to do what is pleasing to the Lord. Look with me over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 3, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is making a contrast between the old covenant and the new. And the reality that God had given him the privilege of being a minister of the new covenant. And what did he say about this? Notice he says in verse 5, 
Not as if we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as ministers of a new covenant. And that new covenant is not a focus on the old, the letter, but is a focus upon the spirit who gives life. What was true of the old covenant? He says it in verse 9. It was a ministry of condemnation that had glory. But what's true of the new covenant? It's a minister of righteousness, and it abounds in glory. For indeed, that which had glory, in this case, has no glory on account of the glory that has surpassed it. So when we start talking about the new covenant, it is a display of God's righteousness and how he fulfills it in his people. And it is the work of the Spirit of God to bring about that transformation. And you know what it does? It liberates God's people. And so he says at the end of chapter 3, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's liberty. And what liberty means is you are now free to love God, to walk with God, to please God. The natural man can't do anything to please God. The natural man has no desire to even come to God. But for the child of God, I have been liberated from the bondage of sin through the operation of the Spirit of God and the grace of God at work so that I can now delight the heart of my Lord and Savior. And what is God doing through his people because of that? Verse 18, for we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, how? Into that same glory. How sad that people try to put together rules and regulations to become more spiritual. How sad that people have developed a works form of sanctification to give them principles to make themselves better. How sad that individuals are satisfied with biblical principles to live by instead of recognizing, you know what I really need? I need to see the beauty and the glory of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Looking in the mirror, I see the glory of the Lord. My eyes need to be focused on the author and finisher of faith, Jesus Christ. And the more I look at him, the spirit of God does a transforming work within his people into what? The image of the Lord. We are being changed from glory unto glory into the image of the Lord. See, as you began this walk, by grace through faith. So now if you are one of his children and you want to be pleasing to God and do that which isn't keeping with his character, guess what? It's by grace through faith also. The righteous or the just man lives how? By faith. A dependence upon God to make changes within me that I do not have the ability to accomplish on my own. One final thing. Look with me over later in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as you go through those trials and toils and dangers and snares in life, when you find that you feel overwhelmed, you can't handle what has come, 
And you even pray and ask God like Paul did, can I be delivered from this? God's response to Paul and God's response to us as his children today is, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you want to know what you need to be pleasing to God? You want to know what you need to meet your trials here? You want to know what you need to walk each day in spite of the obstacles that is in keeping with God's design for his children? The sufficiency of grace. My grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, then I'm glad when I'm weak. When I've come to the end of my hoarded resources, when instead of being impressed with my abilities, because I've learned when I'm really weak, that's when I'm strong. That's when I see the dynamic of God at work in me. Why is grace not amazing to us today? Because deep down inside, we think God's gotten a bargain by getting us. Because deep down inside, we still have the misconception there's something good about us in our natural condition. Because deep down inside, people think, I made a decision. That's what's made me different than the rest. And that's why we don't see the reality of many slave traders being changed into the servants and preachers of the gospel of the grace of God, like was true of John Newton. It's all of grace, dear brother and sister in Christ. And the evil one is at work to try to undermine grace to try to confuse people about grace, to try to substitute something for grace. And what I need to understand as a child of God, God made me alive by his grace. God drew me to himself by his irresistible grace. God is the one that has positioned me before him And he will never hold my sins against me. What a gift of grace. God is the one who is involved in effectually working so that I am no longer what I used to be, but I am now a servant of righteousness desiring to please him and upset when I fail in that responsibility, but knowing that it has not changed my position before him. I understand that grace is what is transforming me into the image of Jesus Christ. I understand that this life I live has grace that has brought me safe thus far. And it is grace that will take me home to glory. God's grace is truly amazing. And for you or me as a child of God, It is only and always grace. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you so much for your truth. Please take these feeble words and use them in a way to encourage your children to bring glory to your name. And Father, may we see in our own day the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God to transform individuals into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.